Now, let me just be clear. I'm not talking about superficial happiness. I'm talking about a joy. And I sort of want to be unashamed this afternoon about saying to be a Christian is joyful. And sometimes we can live in this world and it's hard and there's all sorts of things that are challenges to us and all sorts of things that we find are a struggle and we can lose sight of the joy that it is to be a Christian. So what I want to do this afternoon is I simply want to say to you, it's good. It's so good. And I want us to celebrate and to enjoy that together this afternoon. And in order to do that, we're just going to do one verse. Right, because we're getting back into John. I didn't want to bite off too much this afternoon. Didn't want to rush too much. We're going to just do the first verse of John 13. And then, then we'll pick up the pace um, in the coming weeks. But I wanted to stop on this verse and to dig deep into this verse because the Bible is so rich and there's such treasure that it's worth sometimes really taking our time to look at it. And so we're going to just look at John chapter 13, verse 1. And it's going to set up the series. It's going to help us to see what's coming between now and Christmas. It's going to help us to anticipate some of the things that are going to So why don't we pray and let's ask God for his help. And then we'll pray. Happy Father, we thank you this afternoon for having your word open in front of us. Father, we ask that you would please help us to listen, to understand, to learn. Rejoice. Find deep joy in who you are and all that you've done. And we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. So, John 13, verse 1. Here it is. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to, him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, and loved them to the end simple verse. But actually, in John's Gospel, it functions as a really important point that sets up all that's coming. And I want to show you three things that should make us rejoice this afternoon. And here's the first thing. Our God saves. Our God saves people. That should make us excited. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because John tells us that all that we're going to read between now and Christmas in John chapters 13 to 17, all of it took place just before the Passover festival. You see that? Why did John tell us that? You might say, well, he's just telling us that so we can kind of locate it. You know, it's nearly Christmas, that sort of thing. No, I think John has a much bigger purpose in mind than that. And the reason I think that John has a bigger purpose is because he keeps telling us that it's Passover time. If you go back one page, if you've got a Bible, that you start of John chapter 12, verse 1, we're told six days before the Passover. In other words, John says this idea of the Passover is the backdrop to everything that we're about to read and to understand. And it isn't even just here. If you go back through John's Gospel, you find that John mentions the Passover all over the place. We've already had two Passover festivals in John. One was back in John chapter 2, where we were told that it was Passover time. And then again in John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it was nearly the Passover festival. Again and again we're told 
is possible. It's because Passover is this motif that runs through the Bible. You know if you watch a film like Indiana Jones, and, and it's got a bit of theme music in it that keeps coming back. And you know at that point that something heroic is about to happen. This is the moment, right? And you've kind of been going through... You know, the story's been going on, but then suddenly the music comes back again. You go, I know this music! This is the hero music, it's going to do something awesome. Well, the Passover is a motif that runs right the way through the pages of the Bible, and it's just like that. When you hear the word Passover in your head, you should hear... You know that something extraordinary is about to happen. It's the motif that tells you something massive is going on. And what is this motif? What is this Passover festival? Well, the Passover was the moment when God, back in history, rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. They were slaves. They were suffering. They were powerless. They were in massive trouble. And God acted. God said, I will set you free from your slavery. God came to save them. And God worked powerful works. And he saved his people by a sacrifice. There was a lamb, and the lamb was slain, and the blood was put on the door frame. And when God saw the blood, the judgment passed over the people, and his people were saved, and the enemy was destroyed. That's the motif. It's God saves. But the weird thing is, when God is telling them what to do back in Exodus to say this is how you ought to escape, he also says to them, by the way, you've got to celebrate this every single year. You've got to have a festival every year. Why did God tell them to do that? Because he wants them to remember that he's God himself. I, I've been thinking um, this week about this idea of celebrating and about festivals. I don't know what the last festival was you went to. I very nearly went to a festival last night. I drove right through. I didn't know that I was going to a festival. But it turns out, as I was driving through somewhere in the deepest, darkest bits of South London, there was some wireless festival. We looked up the headliners. I was in the car with James Knapp. We looked up the headliners. We had not heard of any of them. But there's a lot of people. And uh, when was the last time you went to a festival, a kind of a big gathering of celebration? Well, God's people have festivals all over the place. It's something God's people do. And I reckon you can tell a lot about a culture by what they celebrate. What is it that the culture celebrates? And it will tell you what they value. It will tell you their story. And this Passover became woven into the very narrative. God said to his people, I don't want this just to be an, a random act that I did. I want it to be woven into your story. I want you to be the people who say, we're the saved people. We're the people of the Passover. We're the people whose God saves us. And so God's people were to celebrate year after year after year this festival of the sacrifice of the lamb that brought slavery to an end. 
And then when Jesus comes onto the scene in John's Gospel, one of the first ways that he's described in John chapter 1, this was years ago when we did this, one of the first ways he's described is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of And so this motif, this Passover rescue motif, which has been so powerful in God's people, is now being picked up in this man, Jesus. He's the Lamb. He's the sacrifice. He's going to be the one who saves. And then John highlights that by he keeps saying the Passover is near, the Passover is near. And then as we get to John 13, we discover it's Passover time again. We know something big is coming, and that becomes a huge theme through the rest of this section of John. To the point where it becomes very clear in John 19, when Jesus ends up crucified, hanging on a cross, and we're told that no bones were broken. Why? Because that's what he did with the Passover lamb. So here's a reason to be cheerful. Here's a reason to be joyful. Here's a reason to be happy this afternoon. How God saved. You've got more. You've got sight of the fact that that's what Jesus came to do. You see, just like God's people back in Egypt, we too are slaves by nature. In John chapter 8, a few weeks ago, months ago, we saw that we're slaves to sin. We're enslaved to sin and death. We cannot free ourselves. We're powerless, just like the slavery of Egypt. We are slaves, and Jesus came to be the one who saves, to be the Passover lamb who takes our place, our sin, our death, our suffering on himself, to be our substitute so that we, as we look to him, might find him to be the one who sets us free. Our God saves. That is a real question. But there's more here. Let's look at the second thing. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. What a puzzling phrase. Here's the second thing I think she gets, she gets excited. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus had a plan. He talks about the hour had come. That's a phrase that we've seen loads of times in John's Gospel, right? The hour's not yet come, the hour's not yet come, the hour's not yet come. You can't force Jesus to do something he doesn't want to do. Here is Jesus who says, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time, now it's time. He's not hurried, he's not rushed, he's not pressured, he's not panicked. Jesus, in his time, does what is necessary to save us. I think we live in a world that is full of rush and stress and plans going wrong, right? Is there anyone in this room who could put their hand up and say, oh, I've never had a plan go wrong. My plans always work. My plans always fall into place. No. Sometimes the hour comes and we're not there because we're late. The train is delayed. And yet here is Jesus, the one whose hour is perfect. His timing is perfect. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And so as we read through these next few chapters, we should read them saying he knew what he was doing. This is good news. And what he was doing, it says, is the hour had come for him to leave the world 
and go to the Father. That's puzzling as well, right? I think I'd assumed it. He said, right, the hours come for me to die on the cross. Okay, this is it. I'm going to die on the cross now to save the world. But actually, Jesus has a bigger goal than just dying on the cross. I know this sounds slightly wrong. But Jesus has a bigger goal than just dying on the cross for us. Actually, what Jesus is doing is he is returning to his Father. That's his great joy. That's his great goal. And he's going to go via the cross. He's going to die on a cross to pay for sin. But that's not where he ends up. He goes through death to return to his Father. He's going to leave this world. That's good news. Because if the cross was the end point, if the cross was, if his death was a dead-end street and Jesus went down the dead-end street and then that was it, then he'd be impressive, but we have no hope. But Jesus says, no, my hour has come not just to die, but to leave and to go to my Father. So I think this should make you happy this afternoon. Jesus is with his Father. Right now, Jesus is with his Father. Jesus, the Son of God, is with the Father God. One, united, perfect. And they're together now. It was almost nice for them, but why should that make me happy? It should make you happy, because that's where our hope is found. All the way through John's Gospel. Come on, let's remember this. Let's recap. Sorry if I'm you. It's great to have you here. I'll tell you this for the first time, but we've seen loads of this. But that our hope is found in the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's because the Father loves the Son that he saves us. You are a gift if you're a Christian, right, get this. If you're a Christian, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus says, all those that you've given me. And so he saved you, not just because you're so wonderful and awesome and fabulous. He saved you because he wanted to give you to his Son as a gift. And Jesus... But, the only reason he went to the cross was not just because he loved us, but because he loved his Father, because he wanted his Father's glory. And so he said, I'll go and die to save people because it will bring you glory, Father. And so here's the thing. The relationship between the Father and the Son should bring us joy because that's where our hope is found. Jesus right now is with the Father. That's where he is. He's not a dead man of history. This makes him different to every other founder of a world religion, every other historical figure. They're all dead. Not Jesus. Jesus is alive. Jesus is with his Father. That's where he's gone. And that's why we don't just remember Jesus and go, isn't it nice we remember Jesus? We don't just hold on to the teachings of Jesus. We don't just try and copy the example of Jesus. We know Jesus because he's with his Father. And through Jesus we know the Father. It is an extraordinary thing that our God saves and it's an extraordinary thing that Jesus is now with his Father. 
But of course, leaving this world is sad, right, for his disciples. They've had him with them for three years, and now he says, well, I'm leaving. It's always sad when someone tells you they're leaving, right? Someone says to you, actually, we're going away, and you feel like, that's sad. Remember when my mum and dad went to Uganda for two years? It was sad to say goodbye to them. So Phil and Vicky, who are mission partners from this church, when we sent them away, it was, I mean, friendly way. <laughs> it was sad, right? We cried, we wept, because they left. And Jesus is leaving, and so in some ways you might say, but this is sad because he's leaving. And actually what we're going to see in these chapters is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for him leaving. That's what he does in the next few chapters. And he says to them, I'm leaving, but you're never going to be abandoned. That's what's coming up. But actually it is good news that Jesus has left to be with his father. That should make us happy. Third sentence in John 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a statement. I actually think that that verse is like a pivot in John's gospel. Having loved his own who were in the world, John chapters 1 to 12, he now loved them to the end. John chapter 12 You see, what we're being shown is that Jesus came into this world because he loved his own. Having loved his own who were in the world. Jesus knows who are those who are his. They are precious to him. You see, sometimes we talk about Jesus loving the world. Oh yeah, Jesus loves everyone. Yes, he does love everyone, but actually he loves his own. He loves those who are his. If you were to go to the Tottenham Hotspur football stadium, which I appreciate that for most people in this room would be an odd thing to do. But if you were to go to the Tottenham Hotspur football stadium, you would hear them singing this song about Harry Kane. I'm not going to say. You'd hear them singing this song about Harry Kane. They would sing, it's one of our own. One of our own, and they're not very intelligent, probably fans. I'm joking, I'm joking. They're very proud of the fact that he's our own, right? He, they're, they're, he's not just, all other football fans might say Harry Kane's a good football player, fine, whatever. Tottenham fans say he's our own. He belongs to us. Or like the tennis last night, Emma Raducanu winning. Right, we're like, She's one of us! She won it all behalf! Yeah! That's how Jesus goes back to You're one of his own. You're not just a space in the crowd. You're not just a number in a vast multitude. You are his own. To use the language of John chapter 10, you're one of his sheep and he knows you by name. He knows your name. That should make you happy. And he has loved his own. And so far in John's Gospel, the way he has loved his own is by showing them his glory. 
And in the first half of John's Gospel, there are seven signs that reveal God's glory. He loves you when he reveals himself to you. He loves you when he shows you his glory. He loves you when he, he shows you how wonderful he is so that you might love him. He's revealed his glory. But now in the second half of John's Gospel, he's going to show you that he loves you to the end. He loves you completely. He loves you with a love that doesn't stop short. He loves you with a love that does it absolutely. You know how annoying it is when someone does the washing up? You, not sure I have housemates. And uh, you have somebody does the washing up. And they, they do some washing up. They don't do it completely. And they just do a bit of it. They do their bit. Well, I washed up my bit. Or even more irritatingly, they do nearly all of it. They just need a teaspoon. Why didn't we just do the teaspoon? We finished. Then it would all be done. But often our love is like that, isn't it? We love so much, but we we stop short. Here's how Jesus loves you. He's loved you to the end. He's loved you to the absolute last drop of His blood. He's loved you. He could not love you anymore. He's the infinite Son of God, and His infinite love has loved you to the end, completely, maximally. Which is why, as Jesus died on the cross, He's able to say, It's finished. I've done it right to the last. That's what we're going to see in Jesus. So this afternoon, I just want to lift Jesus up before your eyes. And I want to say, we have a God who saves. We have a Jesus who's now with his Father. He's there for us, and we can know him, and we can enjoy him. And he's the Jesus who loved us, even to the very end. Which means there's nothing more for you to do. You don't have to earn his love. You don't have to demonstrate how awesome you are. Just enjoy his love. Receive him. I wonder this afternoon, would you describe yourself as someone loved by Jesus? Not in a general way, but in a specific, he knows your name, so he loves you. And perhaps there are areas of your life when you say, but he, he can't love me because of this, and I feel this shame, and I feel this guilt, and there's things in my past, and there's things that are a barrier to me, and I, I, I just can't believe that he loves me. Jesus loves you to the end. He's done it all. If his love were not infinite, then maybe there could be a sin that would be too big for him to love. You beyond. If Jesus were not infinite, maybe there'd be some situation where his love could not quite reach. There'd be some problem that his love could not quite overcome. But because Jesus is the infinite Son of God, who's loved you to the end, infinitely, by dying on a cross in your place, Therefore, he loved you to the end, and there is no sin, and there is no circumstance, and there is no problem that he cannot overcome with his love. He's loved you to the end. This afternoon, this is the place of freedom. This is the place of joy. And this is how John's gospel works. His glory is revealed, and then his love is revealed. And if we've seen lots of his glory, we can go on chapters 1 to 12.
please, by God's Spirit, might receive much of His love as we become chapters to the That we might know what it means that He loved us. And one of the biggest reasons I think Christians struggle, one of the biggest doubts that we have, one of the biggest problems we have, in fact, perhaps it's is it too much to say that all of our problems come from, as Christians, all the struggles we have come from a failure to believe that God really loves us that way? That's where we come from. How do we see the love that is satisfying? The love that would make every sin that we're so tempted to play with, the love that would make us go, why do I want that filthy bit of sin when I come this love? That's the reminder that God has the dark class. But there's the introduction. I hope it whets your appetite. We're going to see tons and tons of stuff. So we're going to look out for all of these things that pass over the theme of God saving us. We're going to look out for that theme of Jesus leaving but not abandoning his disciples. And we're going to look out for that theme of God loving us. I'm going to pray this afternoon. Pray now and ask that we might enjoy that together. And then we're going to check and celebrate it. Father, we praise you. We praise you for that motif of you, the saving God, that Passover motif, that you're the God who saves us from slavery and death. Please help us to see that more clear. Help us to know your love. Please, with that, we are greatest treasure. We ask that as we sing, as we worship you, and as we eat and drink bread and wine, that we might be reminded. We might have a deep confidence in all that you've done for us. And we ask you to do the same.